So I think we should get started. Um, we, uh, we probably might have a few more stragglers coming in, but I, I'd like to get us started so we can make full use of this time. Thank you all for coming. Uh, this is really wonderful. I, I think this is the beginning of a series of events that have been uh, generously sponsored by the Center for Middle East Studies uh, and the Middle East Studies program here on campus, the Department of History, the Institute for Historical Studies, and the Clement Center. And it's really wonderful to have these three different uh, pots of money coming together to bring us uh, a series of, I think, uh, insightful and important historians who write about the Middle East in ways that are relevant for those of us who study the Middle East, uh, but also study American history, international history, and world history. And my hope is that over the course of this year, we'll actually have a continual conversation about these issues that brings us together across lines rather than keeping us separate in the different areas we study. This is, this is an effort in interdisciplinary study here, and it's really great to see so many of you uh, here. And I, I want to thank our sponsors. Um, I want to also uh, take this opportunity to introduce our distinguished speaker who's here. Uh, I've known Paul for uh, a number of years uh, since he was a graduate student at Ohio State. I had the, uh, the fortune to visit Ohio State a couple of times and meet Paul there, and it was clear he was an up-and-coming star as a graduate student. And he has, <laughs> he has published uh, this wonderful new book uh, called The Global Offensive, uh, The United States, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and the Making of the Post-Cold War Order. And I don't want to steal any of his thunder. But I do want to say that this is, I think, uh, one of the very few books I have read on U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East and on Middle East history that manages not only to tell a story about foreign policy, but also a story about major social cultural change in the region and the rise of new actors. Uh, as political entities, and I think that's an important part of the story that often gets lost in the ways we talk about uh, this region, at least those of us who write about it from the United States. Uh, maybe those of you who write uh, with more expertise in the region are, are better at this. Uh, and Paul has certainly, I think, moved the historiography in important ways. This book is based upon uh, deep archival work, not just in American sources, but in Palestinian sources, uh, based largely in, in uh, Beirut, and that's quite impressive unto itself. But most of all, we were just talking about this, uh, this book manages to tell a story, a compelling story. And I think it's important that when we study regions that are so politicized and controversial, that we recognize the importance of narrative. Uh, what Paul is doing is narrating for us in a new way that allows us to understand this region better, the relationships between different actors. And I don't think there's anything more important that we could do uh, but to try to tell stories that help us understand, uh, in many ways, how a region evolves and how its evolution affects us today. So this is a model, I think, for that kind of work, and I encourage you all uh, to read it. Paul is going to speak uh, for about how long? Are you going to speak? 40 minutes. About 40 minutes. Uh, then we'll pull out the hook. We'll stop him from speaking, and then uh, we'll have a rigorous discussion about the issues that he raises. Uh, and I've, I've prepared Paul for that. Uh, I think what we want to have is, is rigorous conversation here. And I know that from experience, Paul is, uh, is open to discussion and is uh, incredibly uh, broad in his thinking, but also uh, open-minded and, and rubber rubber-chested in his willingness to take different kinds of analysis. So it'll be interesting to see where we go from here. So without uh, further blabber from me, Paul. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Jeremy. <clears throat> well, thanks uh, to Jeremy for bringing me out. Uh, thanks uh, also to Courtney and Brianna for kind of arranging everything and setting it up. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I think it's the first time anyone has ever described me as rubber-chested, but hopefully not the last. Um, 
So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna start off by telling a story, uh, and it's a story that I think demonstrates a lot of the themes that that I talk about in the book, and it starts in July, July 1st, 1970, to be precise. Um, <clears throat> and this is an evening in which Richard Nixon six, sits down with journalists from the three major television networks in the United States. And the president warns the millions of Americans that tune in that evening uh, that his critics, who have now come to denounce the domino theory uh, in, in relation to Vietnam, he warns, he warns the, 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 the audience that night that those critic, critics had not, quote, talked to the, talk to the dominoes. Uh, the president explains to his audience that American success in South Vietnam could mean the difference between freedom and a communist takeover for millions of people throughout East Asia. Further, a communist victory in South Vietnam would surely encourage the Soviet Union and communist China to pursue their revolutionary ambitions elsewhere. The conversation then turned to the Middle East. You cannot separate what happens to America in Vietnam from the Middle East, from Europe, or any place else, he told Americans that night. The Soviets were fast moving into the region. Uh, it, the region itself was already torn by the Arab-Israeli conflict and by a conflict between Arab moderates and Arab radicals. And making matters worse, there now appeared to be an even more revolutionary force in the region, the Palestinian guerrillas. Important as the struggle for Southeast Asia had been, Nixon warned, the stakes and the dangers in the Middle East were even greater. Nixon was not the only leader thinking in these global terms. That same year of 1970, in late March, a Chinese military aircraft left the Beijing airport. Uh, It was bound for Hanoi, and on board were a delegation of Palestinian liberation fighters that included executive committee chairman of the Palestine Liberation Organization, Yasser Arafat. Now, Arafat, when he had arrived in China, tried to attract as little attention as possible. Uh, He had not worn his trademark black and white keffiyeh. Instead, he chose to wear a conservative business suit. But upon his departure uh, from the People's Republic, he donned the keffiyeh, and he was seen off by a crowd of thousands. His delegation arrived at Hanoi's heavily fortified Gia Lam Airport on the the eve of a series of North Vietnamese offensives, uh, attacks on U.S. and South Vietnamese positions. After disembarking, Arafat was met by members of the Politburo and escorted into a reception area for several hours of discussion. Arafat stayed in North Vietnam for two weeks. While he was there, he toured factories. Uh, He was taken to missile batteries, training facilities, schools. uh, And he enjoyed a a meeting uh, pictured behind me with Hanoi's preeminent military strategist, the recently deceased Va Wayne Zapp. Zapp, in speaking to Arafat, said this. The Vietnamese and Palestinian people have much in common, just like two people suffering from the same illness. Nixon, Arafat, and Zapp each recognized that they were operating on a global field. For these three men, leaders of a superpower, a guerrilla organization, and a small revolutionary state, the politics of revolution and national liberation were part of a single interconnected system that stretched around the world. Seemingly local disturbances could have unforeseen repercussions thousands of miles away. 
Now, what I find most fascinating about this story is the ways in which the international and transnational dynamics shape the actions and perceptions of historical actors. An American president, a North Vietnamese general, and a Palestinian guerrilla all understand the transnational dimensions of their actions and strategies. Now, I came to this story as a specialist in U.S. foreign relations. Uh, I, I used it as a window into understanding the nature of American power in the world. And I believe that as more and more historians um, uh, try to do this, uh, that, that they, they really need to understand, to, to, to begin to recast uh, the story of American uh, foreign relations history, uh, not simply as an American story, but rather as part of a transnational and even global story. Uh, this effort to internationalize the field has become increasingly important in recent years. Now, traditionally, most scholars of U.S. foreign relations have focused on the formation of foreign policy, right? the battles between various organizations and groups inside the United States to shape American international policies. Now, while this dimension of the story is critical to understanding the nature of American power, Increasing numbers of historians have, have begun to argue that we also need to gain a better understanding of the impact of American power abroad. To put it another way, scholars need to understand not only the view from Washington, but also the view from places as different as Beirut, Paris, and Beijing. They need to look at the United States as one player in a complex global field filled with a variety of actors. These include not only other great powers, but also small states, non-state groups, individuals, non-governmental organizations, all of which play a role in shaping this global field across which the United States moves. And I think Jeremy's, uh, Jeremy's work has, has really been pioneering in, in, some, in this, this area. Now, this amounts to an effort to present a multi-dimensional picture of American power in the world. And this is a picture based on multilingual, multi-archival research. Moreover, it casts actors in the developing world not simply as the objects of, foreign, of the foreign policy of the Western powers, but rather as dynamic agents in the making of contemporary history. Right? They're not simply victims. Uh, moreover, far from being bit players or supporting actors on a stage dominated by presidents and prime ministers, the Palestinians and other indigenous groups were active participants in the complex set of negotiations that created the contemporary world. Treated in this way, we can begin to understand the PLO's role as an essential component of a genuinely international story. Ultimately, uh, I argue in the book that the history of the Cold War in the Middle East is inseparable from the history of the peoples and states that exist there. So what I'm going to do today in my talk is to look at three of the biggest revelations that I came across, three of the biggest surprises that I found uh, in the course of, of researching and writing the book. Uh, and if anyone wants to talk about other aspects, I'd be happy to, to address them in Q&A. Uh, so in my book, uh, The Global Offensive, uh, I applied this international approach to the history of U.S.-Palestinian relations uh, between 1967 and 1975. The title of the book itself has a double meaning. Uh, the first ref refers to the PLO's international campaign to build support for its revolutionary movement. By tapping into a global network of revolutionary groups and states, by launching armed attacks around the world, 
And by presenting its case to international institutions, such as the United Nations, the PLO became a force to be reckoned with in the Middle East. The second meaning of my title, however, refers to the wave of revolutions that swept through the developing world during the Cold War in places as different as Cuba, Algeria, and Vietnam. Now, most accounts in world history textbooks, for instance, don't tend to treat the Palestinians as part of this wave, right? even though they were, they were undertaking these actions at precisely the same time as other groups, such as the Vietnamese. Uh, rather, the Palestinian story is usually consigned to being a subchapter in the larger narrative of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Now, one of the things that I try to do in my book is to challenge this idea and return the PLO to its, its international context, right? to place uh, the, the story of the PLO in a global, uh, a global landscape. The Palestinians were part of a broad complex of liberationist forces scattered throughout the international system of the Cold War world. Viewed from this perspective, the era's Insurrections, revolts, uprisings, and rebellions appear not so much as discrete episodes, but rather as linked and at times even coordinated series of assaults on the structures of global power. Indeed, this is often how American policymakers understood what was happening, and it helps us to understand their reactions to the Palestinians. These third world revolutions were part of a unique moment in world history when it appeared as if progressive guerrilla movements might actually succeed in seizing control of the post-colonial world and the over 70% of the Earth's population that lived inside of it. More than just isolated reactions to local circumstances, these uprisings shared a common vision of revolutionary politics drawn from a shared culture of third world national liberation. I'm not making the case that they were monolithic, but I am arguing that they were linked by a web of transnational connections, exchanges, and crossings that characterized the historic 20th century cause that was national liberation. Guerrilla fighters from Palestine, Algeria, Vietnam, Cuba, and a dozen other locales can thus be understood as a sprawling constellation of revolutionary networks. Viewed from a distance, they appear as an international force in their own right, a global offensive against the bastions of state power in the Cold War system. While Palestinian fighters recognized these global networks as a new field on which to wage their war for national liberation, American policymakers saw this transnational terrain as a new front that had to be fortified, that had to be defended. Victory in the Cold War, according to Washington, could not be achieved if the United States was in retreat throughout the global south. For the United States and its allies, holding the line on the third world battlefields of the 1960s and 1970s would mean finding some means to halt this guerrilla offensive. Thus, just as Cuban and Vietnamese fighters can be seen as comprising the western and eastern wings of a worldwide guerrilla offensive, U.S. moves to contest this this advance of national liberation movements from Latin America to Southeast Asia can be understood as part of a long campaign to win the Cold War in in the developing world. These global dynamics came into play in every theater of the Cold War as the European empires uh, began to collapse in the post-45 world. In this way, policymakers in Washington came to understand the Cold War as a struggle for influence across the physical, political, and conceptual battlefields of every region of the world. 
Ultimately, the PLO's global offensive, which began in earnest in the Middle East in late 1967 and reached the world stage by the end of 1974, was only one front in a larger story. Approaching the PLO from this angle, we gain a better appreciation for what American policymakers believed that they were up against when they tried to deal with this revolutionary new force that had appeared in the Middle East in the late 1960s. This, then, was my first revelation, the extent to which the PLO was woven into the global fabric of third world national liberation movements of the 1960s. This is the cover of a Fatah document published in 1967 entitled Dirasat Watajarib Thauria, or Revolutionary Studies and Experiences. It's part of a series of eight pamphlets, uh, four of which piqued my interest. These were studies of the Chinese, Algerian, Vietnamese, and Cuban revolutions. Now, the study of the Algerian revolution made sense. Of course, the Palestinians would be looking at their Arab comrades for guidance in waging their own war of national liberation. But the others grabbed my attention. Here were a series of writings published by a struggling guerrilla movement uh, dedicated to the study of 20th century third world revolutions aimed at helping Palestinian fighters to launch their own national liberation struggle. What lessons did the Palestinians believe uh, the Chinese, Cubans, and Vietnamese had to teach them? Now, up to this point, I'd done most of my research in the National Archives in College Park, but I knew that if I wanted to answer this question, if I wanted to to understand the world as viewed uh, by the PLO, I would need to leave the United States. Uh, Thus, I went to Beirut, uh, two collections of PLO documents uh, from the 1960s and 1970s in the Institute for Palestine Studies. I'd expected, uh, once I got there, to find indictments of American imperialism and find these I did. But I was surprised in finding much more of something else. In their publications, in their writings, in their documents, it became clear that the PLO was captivated by revolutionary movements from around the developing world. What I had stumbled into was not simply a story about American power pushing its way into the developing world, forcing its way into the Middle East, but rather a story about guerrilla fighters seeking to reorder their world by building transnational connections with other groups around the global south. They were, in a very concrete sense, recreating their local struggle as an international revolution as one front in a global offensive. At the same time, they managed to field a major new challenge for American policy in the Middle East. Now, from a tactical standpoint, guerrilla warfare offered a powerful weapon in the battle of the weak against the strong. The list of guerrilla victories in the 20th century was indeed impressive. Resistance movements around the world had managed to win uh, startling political and military victories over conventional armies with access to far greater resources. As the world watched in the 1960s, right at the same time that Arafat and his comrades are, are rising up to take, to take control of the PLO, the Vietnamese were challenging the greatest power the world had ever seen, the United States. Indeed, uh, at, the, at the end of the 1960s, it, it appeared as if historical met momentum was running in favor of the guerrillas. Right? If, to someone looking at the world in, in late 1960, it looks as if a wave of guerrilla revolutions is, is fast sweeping through the post-colonial world. 
This cosmopolitan reading of history played a key role in cementing Palestinian claims to nationhood as the guerrillas sought to frame their own struggle within the broader context of global decolonization. Thus, for example, in a 1969 interview, Yasser Arafat reached out to revolutionaries, quote, in Africa, Asia, and Latin America who consider our struggle as part of the struggle against oppression everywhere. Our struggle is part and parcel of every struggle against imperialism, injustice, and oppression in the world, Arafat explained. It is part of the world revolution which aims at establishing social justice and liberating mankind. The Palestinians would find a willing audience overseas. Many well, observers... Go back. That go back. Where is that from? I didn't remember that in the book. That's not in the book, is it? That's actually in another, in another book, so oh, I didn't well, get the rights to it. But. Yeah, so where is that from? From the book? No, no, no. Where is that, where is that happening? Uh, this is in Jordan. Uh, this is in Jordan, and you have a group of Fedayeen, which is posing for the picture, clearly. They're not just all on the same page at the same time, <laughs> reading Mao's little, little red book. But it, you know, it's, clear, it's clear that they are trying to present um, a certain image of what they're trying to do uh, to the world. And, and at this point in time, uh, China is actually the, the largest foreign patron of the PLO, uh, and that will change in 72 uh, when the Soviet Union steps in. But, Great, yeah. sorry to interrupt. Oh, sure. So the guerrillas would find a willing audience uh, for their ideas overseas. Many observers in the Western world accepted this idea that the Palestinians were part of a worldwide movement. A wide variety of groups came to see the PLO as the Middle Eastern version of the Viet Cong. Indeed, the Palestinians won early support in the United States among the new left. Members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee accused Israel of being a tool of Western imperialism. The Black Panthers embraced the PLO as a fellow liberation group struggling against the common forces of global oppression. During this same period, MIT linguist Noam Chomsky began drawing comparisons between Israel's wars in the Middle East and America's war in Vietnam. Palestinians found even more support on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. In 1968, France's pan-African weekly, Jeune Afrique, compared the PLO to the Algerian resistance. They described Arafat as the Arab Che Guevara and argued that the Palestinian battle was part of the third world struggle and the entire world's fight against imperialism and colonialism. But left-wing groups were not the only ones who saw the Palestinians in this light. American intelligence officials also worried about, about the impact of these third world liberation movements in the Middle East. A 1968 paper warned that, quote, as long as the examples of China, the Viet Cong, and similar movements continue to be influential, it is unlikely that the Palestinians will accept the idea of Israel's permanent existence. State Department officials warned the Palestinian cadres were training in China, they were traveling to North Vietnam and hosting African liberation fighters in their camps in Lebanon. Thus, American leaders came to understand that the Palestinian nationalism was linked to revolutionary forces around the Third World. It was, at its heart, a transnational challenge for American policymakers. Ultimately, by fashioning themselves as cosmopolitan revolutionaries, as Arab Viet Cong, the PLO became a fixture on the politics, in, a fixture in the politics of the Middle East, a cause celebre among progressive groups around the world, and a thorn in the side of American policy in the region. The second revelation 
that I came across, across the second big surprise uh, that I came across in the course of writing the book, came in regard to the search for a political solution to the Arab-Israeli conflict. Now, conventional wisdom holds that the United States has consistently sought a political solution uh, to the Arab-Israeli conflict, while the Arabs and the Israelis have, at different times, thrown up roadblocks right, and prevented this. Now, what I found, or what, what I found in the book uh, contradicts this conventional wisdom. Uh, and Jeremy might, might disagree with me here. Um, in fact, during the mid-1970s, the Nixon administration was not, repeat, not interested in seeking a comprehensive peace to the Arab-Israeli conflict. And conversely, right, again, flying in the face of this conventional wisdom, the PLO was, right? So the supposed terrorists are the ones that actually want peace, at least, at least in theory. Now, why wouldn't the United States want peace in the Middle East? Now, once again, I found the answer in broader global dynamics, which I will explain. But first, some, bas- some background. As early as 1968, and both of these documents behind me, which at this point in the talk, everyone sort of squints at them because they can't read the, uh, the, uh, the, the words um, that are underlined. Uh, but as early as 1968, uh, State Department officials recognized that the rise of the Palestinian guerrilla movement represented not just a security threat, but more importantly, a political challenge. The guerrillas represented the revolutionary new face of Arab nationalism in the region. And uh, so the, the, the first document, the one at the left, is talking about uh, changing attitudes in Israel. Uh, and the, the short bit I have underlined reads, uh, Vietnam parallels uh, in the present situation are not far from anyone, from any Israelis' minds. Uh, the other document uh, is, is sort of describing uh, the, uh, the, from April of 1968, uh, describing the Palestinians as a new danger to U.S. interests in the region. Uh, the, uh, it describes a, a demonstrated proclivity among smaller U.N. member nations to cheer efforts to throw off foreign yokes, suggests that the Fedayeen have an increasing opportunity to gain enhanced stature in the global community, uh, and, uh, and a concerted plan uh, to achieve legitimacy for the Fedayeen as a genuine resistance movement. Right? So the, the recognition here is that this, is, this is, isn't so much a security threat as it is a political threat. The rise of the PLO thus complicated American peace initiatives in the Middle East. A number of foreign service officers began arguing as early as 1968 that the United States must now recognize Palestinian national ambitions. And this was not uh, a priority prior to 67. As the guerrillas gained ground, that increasingly came to mean recognizing Arafat and the PLO. Indeed, by late 1970, officials in the Nixon administration recognized that the Palestinians would have to be part of any political settlement in the region. But this was easier said than done. Palestinian fighters, or terrorists, according to Israeli leaders, had launched a frightening campaign of international violence, pioneering a new set of transnational tactics of guerrilla war. There thus remained a strong faction in the Nixon administration, led by Henry Kissinger, which opposed any form of recognition for the PLO. But here's the dilemma with that stance. How do you solve the Arab-Israeli dispute if you refuse to deal with the organization that represents the nation of people whose grievances sit at the very heart of that dispute? How can you resolve the Middle East conflict if you refuse to talk to the Palestinians? And this is the challenge that U.S. policymakers confronted. 
And this was the situation on the eve of the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, which initiated a new round in the peace process led by none other than Henry Kissinger. Now, as this new round began, two basic approaches to negotiations emerged. The first aimed at a comprehensive settlement. Uh, Basically, all of the Arab powers would sit down at a single table with Israel and hammer out a peace treaty. Right? It's get everybody on board, uh, figure out a solution. It's done. It's finished. The second approach, uh, in contrast to this comprehensive approach, was bilateral. Right? Peace agreements would be negotiated between Israel and its its neighbors on a one-on-one basis. A large part of the international community and the American diplomatic corps supported comprehensive negotiations. Henry Kissinger, however favored the latter approach, arguing that bilateral negotiations would simplify matters and make it harder for any single player to spoil the entire process. And in this, he was correct. However, he also had an ulterior motive. If negotiations were conducted bilaterally, Kissinger could achieve a larger strategic goal. He could keep the Soviet Union out of the peace negotiations. The United States would control the pace and the shape of the peace process, and in doing so, deal a devastating blow to Moscow's influence in the region. If the Arab states wanted, uh, wanted their, their land to be returned, uh, if Egypt and Syria wanted to get their land back, they would have to work through the United States. The Soviet Union could give them weapons, could give them diplomatic support, but could really do nothing uh, at the negotiating table, table since the United States controlled it. And the only way for the United States to control the peace process was to set up these bilateral negotiations, and this was Kissinger's famous shuttle diplomacy. There was a catch, however. Bilateral agreements removed pressure on Israel to make concessions to the Arab states. Kissinger's shuttle diplomacy allowed Israel to divide and conquer at the negotiating table, and that's precisely what happened. Once Egypt made peace with Israel, Israeli leaders had less incentive to negotiate with Syria and the Palestinians. Thus, Kissinger's efforts helped to sustain Israel's conflicts with both Syria and the Palestinians. In short, Kissinger's shuttle diplomacy was designed not so much to create a comprehensive settlement to the Arab-Israeli conflict, but rather to serve American Cold War interests in the region. Kissinger was not seeking peace. Rather, he was seeking an American advantage over Moscow in the Middle East. And in this regard, his strategy was a brilliant success. Now, the irony on all of this is that it was during this precise period, in the wake of the 1973 war, that the PLO began to announce its desire to become part of a comprehensive peace process. Moderate leaders like Arafat recognized that the PLO might be running out of time to become part of a political settlement. If Egypt and Syria made peace with Israel, and this looked like it might indeed happen in 1974, the PLO would be left out in the cold. Moreover, if Israel was ready to make peace, it might be forced to evacuate the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Arafat wanted to make sure that if this happened, he would become the leader of a new fledgling Palestinian state, and those territories would not revert to Jordanian or Egyptian rule. Thus, in June of 1974, the PLO issued its 10-point program, which called for the creation of a national authority over any part of Palestine that was liberated. This was the first official acceptance of the concept of a Palestinian state in part of historic Palestine, rather than the entirety of the, the region. 
While the organization still called for the total liberation of Palestine and, by implication, the destruction of Israel, the program was the first official indication that the PLO might be willing to accept something less than complete victory. Thus, over the course of 1974, PLO representatives repeatedly announced their willingness to join the peace process if doing so would lead to the creation of a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza. The proposed solution did not ultimately look so very different than the plan for a Palestinian state that sits on the table today, minus most of the Israeli settlements, of course. However, Kissinger and Israeli leaders had already decided that the PLO would be excluded from diplomatic negotiations. Thus, precisely at the time when the PLO moved into the position to begin negotiation for a two-state solution, the United States locked the Palestinians out of the peace process. The Nixon administration subverted the search for peace to its Cold War interests in the Middle East. Put simply, Henry Kissinger was not acting as a neutral arbiter in the negotiations. Rather, he was using the peace process to fight America's Cold War in the Middle East. I'll just give you a second to, to take this in. Right, they did not... Uh, this is, this is not a very well-posed picture of Arafat with Angela Davis back there. Um, the third surprise, and the last one that I'm going to touch upon today, uh, concerns the disconnect between political influence and military power in international affairs. Although the PLO achieved a tremendous political victory in the international arena, the United States and Israel kept control on the ground. The Palestinians won the battle for the hearts and minds of the world community, but the United States and and Israel won the military struggle. In a sense, this was the reverse of what was taking place in Vietnam at the same time, where the United States was winning every battle uh, in which it engaged Vietnamese communists, but it ultimately lost the hearts and minds and lost the war. So how did this come to be? Again, the international dimension is critical to understanding the story. Through their ties with other revolutionary groups and states abroad, the Palestinians joined a progressive political network that stretched around the globe. PLO leaders were able to use this network to take their case time and time again to the United Nations. There, Palestinian national aspirations won the endorsement of an overwhelming majority of member states. By the early 1970s, the PLO could count on the support of a majority of the world community in the United Nations, and it it retains that support today. But this support ultimately had its limits. In the UN Security Council, the Nixon administration moved into a position of blocking resolutions that were critical of Israel and supportive of the PLO. The first such instance, which marked a milestone as the first lone American veto of a UN Security uh, Council resolution, came in 1972. In the 40 years since, the United States has used its veto dozens of times in an effort to defend Israel at the United Nations. Thus, the Palestinian advantage in the international community and the international arena was somewhat blunted. Now, meanwhile, on the ground, the Nixon administration began sending massive shipments of weapons and military aid to Israel. Indeed, the years following 1967 marked the consummation of the so-called special relationship between the United States and Israel. This this program fit into the larger rationale of the Nixon Doctrine, which called for Washington to fight the Cold War in the Third World by using local proxies or police powers armed and supported by American dollars. $1.5 
This strategy proved surprisingly effective in the case of the Arab-Israeli conflict. You can see in the graph uh, behind me that that huge spike is the result of of, um, of rearmament uh, after the the seventy three war, uh, but in general you can see the increasing trend and it continues to go up. By the mid nineteen seventies, the PLO could point to an array of international supporters and list a host of radical groups around the world that celebrated its struggle but it was no closer to its goal of creating a Palestinian homeland. U.S. support for regional allies, such as Israel and Jordan, was stronger than ever. Further, the Republic of Lebanon was in the process of collapsing into a civil war that would pull the PLO into a conflict with Lebanese militias, the Syrian army, and eventually Israeli military forces. In the end, the PLO would remain locked out of statehood into the 21st century, as we all know. Put simply, the PLO's success in the international arena did not translate into victories on the ground. This dynamic helps to explain why the Israel-Palestine dispute has been so enduring. Palestinian leaders feel, with significant justification, that they have won the political debate and hold the moral high ground, at least at the United Nations. However, their aspirations have consistently been blocked by the United States and Israeli foreign policy. Is it any wonder, then, that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict remains remains with us today, a deadlock between one group who commands the political support of most of the world community and another that controls the physical space that is Israel-Palestine? So what ultimately is the broader impact of the American struggle with the PLO during this period? I make the case that the Palestinian experience of the 1960s and 1970s can be seen as a watershed in the worldwide struggle for national liberation. By tapping into a transnational culture of third world liberation, Palestinian fighters became adept at navigating the revolutionary networks of the Cold War international system. They became poster children for progressive movements around the world. By late 1973, Arafat would claim to have taken up, quote, the banner of the global struggle from the Vietnamese Revolution, marking the passage to a new phase in the 20th century wars of decolonization. However, as Arafat's global struggle moved from the jungles of Southeast Asia to the mountains, plains, and cities of the Middle East, its character changed. If the victory of the Vietnamese communist forces in 1975 was one of the last great triumphs in a broader wave of national liberation wars, the Palestinian armed struggle during those same years can be seen as one of the first great stalemates. The PLO's experience thus marked the end of an era characterized by triumphant wars of national liberation around the global south and the beginning of a new chapter in world history. This battle for Palestine marked a turning point in the global Cold War. Hereafter, guerrilla campaigns throughout the developing world would be confronted with a new configuration of American power in the form of local proxies, local policemen, who would work to hold the line against the string of guerrilla offensives. At the same time, Washington established a defensive position in the chambers of the United Nations, where it sought to counter the tide of third-worldism that was sweeping through the organization. Finally, The contest between the PLO and the United States was one of a series of events that marked the beginning of what we can think of as an era of globalization. Palestinian fighters navigated the worldwide revolutionary networks of the 1960s and 1970s. They gained diplomatic support in international forums like the United Nations. 
More dramatically, they employed a new set of transnational guerrilla tactics, which indicated the increasing power of non-state actors in the international system and introduced the concept of international terrorism into the modern lexicon. To combat these attacks, Israeli security forces developed a range of counterterrorism techniques that would provide a blueprint for the special forces operations of the 21st century. In this way, the PLO's war would have more in common with the types of conflicts that would break out in the 21st century than with the battles of the Cold War era. Meanwhile, the PLO was pulled into the carnage of the Lebanese Civil War. As the goal of Palestinian statehood grew more distant, the impetus for liberation shifted to new segments of Palestinian society that would challenge the PLO in the decades to come, Hamas being the most prominent of these, these groups. While it appeared as if Washington and its allies around the developing world had found the means to stop the revolutionary dominoes from falling, the post-Cold War era promised to be every bit as fraught with conflict as the half-century that had preceded it. Thus, the case of the PLO highlighted both the possibilities and the dangers of an increasingly interconnected world order. It revealed the potential for globalized revolution and the limited ability of these cosmopolitan realities to re of, of these cosmopolitan visions to reshape local realities. Even as the rise of the PLO returned the Palestinian question to the center of the Arab-Israeli dispute, it marked the end of an age of triumphant wars of national liberation and signaled the beginning of a new era. So in this sense, I think it's fair to say uh, that, uh, that at least to some degree, Nixon, Arafat, and Zapp, right, who I introduced at the beginning of the lecture, got part of the story wrong. Right? Perhaps the, the Palestinians and the Vietnamese did not have so much in common, uh, certainly not, not in the outcome of, of their story. And, and it, I wonder if, if perhaps uh, this helps us to explain why, uh, why the region has so many troubles today, the fact that, uh, that Nixon, Arafat, and Zapp were ultimately wrong. Uh, and I think I'll, I'll leave it at that for today. And take any questions you have. Great.